There's a phrase we like to use about lots of situations, and it's called life or death. But generally speaking, very few of us ever really find ourselves in a situation that is truly life or death. Today, I speak to somebody whose job has been to make the hard calls in that very situation. We're going to hit the music and we're going to learn how somebody deals with that kind of pressure as their job. Joining me today is Dexter Fletcher. He's a police officer. He's a SWAT operator. He's a senior operator for Miami-Dade SWAT. Dexter, thank you for joining me. Good to be here. Now, I've known you for a week, and in that time, you've done a little bit of training with me, which I deeply appreciated because most people don't let me play with rubber knives. Normally, we just dive into some of the topics I want to cover, but today I would like you to give a little bit of the background on who you are and what you do, because I think it's important for the context that I would like to talk about later on. Okay, once again, thank you for having me here. I've been on the Miami-Dade SWAT team, I mean, the Miami-Dade Police Department for 36 years. 30 of those years, I have been uh, active in Miami-Dade SWAT, uh, also known as SRT. Pretty much uh, most of my career has been done in a SWAT capacity. Well, one, how did you get into law enforcement? And from there, what was the mechanism that switched you onto the SWAT team? Okay, so I was always... uh, I think I was geared for that. Um, when I was a kid, I was the little and smallest uh, kid in the block, the neighborhood. My brothers and my sisters, they were all bigger than me, but I just had this thing about me. I always wanted to protect them and always into martial arts. So anytime somebody wanted to fight them, I was the little one that stepped up to fight. So they never had to fight. So I was pretty much of a protector. I protected other kids, smaller kids in the neighborhood because I had a, a compassion for smaller kids being bullied. Um, so it, it pretty much was in my DNA. When I was, uh, when I first time I saw Officer Friendly, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but what we had when I was a kid, they had a program called Officer Friendly, a police officer come out to the school and talk to kids about law enforcement. And I knew instantly that's what I wanted to do. And he was explaining to me, explaining to us what he, what his uh, jobs were. I said, man, that's pretty much what I do. And sometime later, I saw this show called SWAT. It was actually LAPD SWAT program, uh, our team. And um, I instantly knew, I said, that's exactly what I want to do. What, how old were you when you joined the police academy? When I got a police academy, I'd already done like some, some, I worked for the state and uh, uh, training and hand, uh, handling and training mentally, mentally handicapped kids for about five years. So I would also did two years of college. So I started at the age of around 20, I think it was 25. You joined the police department. And at some point you made the switch into the SWAT team. How does that transition work? So I did five years on the road. Um, we were handling everything from domestics to robberies to getting a cat out of the tree, helping an old lady across the street from the most simple things and to the most extreme things on the road. But most of the times you did it in a singular uh, capacity, just one man unit. And depending on the call, you would have, have a two man unit. So you weren't used to working with seven or eight guys as a whole. Uh, once I went through the school and uh, went through the training and, and qualified to go actually make it to the unit, it was a different thing. You work with a, a team of guys as opposed to one or two guys. Everything you had to learn to do, you had to do it as a team. In fact, when I first got there, they have us. They had a system back then. That was a long time ago, where they would people new people come on. They had a rule where you would go to the bathroom by yourself. You had to have a buddy. Anything you did, you had to do it in teams or pairs or whatever. So they, they were trying to get you to transition from being a singular thinking person to a, uh, a unit of group and uh, thinking person. Now, the, the thing I had in my favor was I was acclimated to that because of my sports background. And track was pretty much like that because you had to operate in a single capacity. But when you're on a relay team, you were working as a team. So I was able to make that transition without any problem. Was it something you aspired to from the start of your career or did an opportunity present itself for you to go like, okay, I would like to be on the SWAT team? That was deep in my heart, my mind, as I think I was around around seven years old, eight years old. I can't remember, but I was very young. I already knew what I wanted to do because when I was a kid, I also made little paper badges and I, I recruited a couple of kids and we would have our paper badges and we asked our fathers to give us our wallets and we have our little paper badges and then we flip them out of that like law enforcement. So I'm telling you, as a kid, I was determined to be a police officer and determined to get on the SWAT team. Once I realized 
that there was a such thing as a SWAT team. So when I got on the department, I did my five years. I understood that you had to be on the road for five years. And I'm glad I did because you have to learn police work. You need to learn how to be a singular operator, understanding the mechanics and the laws and all the diversity that goes into dealing with the public and society and different cultures. Man, it's just so much to learn and absorb. It teaches you to be a better SWAT operative when you learn to work in the police capacity. So it's not something that I was like, okay, I want to get it. No, I knew as a kid, I knew directly what I wanted to do. I, I structured myself that way. I, I love martial arts. I love helping kids, helping people. And I always fought bullies. So, I mean, it's something that was done in me since I was a kid. I was bred for it. So when I got to the department, it's just following and executing the plan that requirements they needed. And, and it, was, it wasn't that complicated for me to get to, get to that position. Everyone's aware of what a SWAT team is, but I don't know if what we publicly think it is, is the full breadth and extent of what the SWAT team really is. What's the difference between the media presentation of what the SWAT team is versus the reality? Or is there any difference? Uh, yes, there is. And, and then I, I have to explain to you that the media has a tendency, they want to make sales, they want to get an audience, they don't really care completely about the truth. Sometimes you get the truth in it, sometimes you don't. And it depends on what era you're talking about with law enforcement. I've been on the department for 36 years, so I've seen a, a progression of relationship with the media to where it was 36 years ago to where it is now. Now you have not just uh, the SWAT team, there's a, a misunderstanding between law enforcement and society as it relates to the media, because the media produces a lot of the, uh, I guess, the intel to the public. So 36 years ago, our relationship with the public and the media was totally different. Now you have anti-cops. Now it seems like it's a, a hobby or a fad or a fashion to hunt cops down and kill them because of the things that goes on between law enforcement and um in society, whether they're dealing with bad people or good people. So media has a tendency to, even back then, to, to draw their own uh, picture of law enforcement instead of the truth. That's why in, in law enforcement, they have a relationship or a specific entity within the police department, at least in ours, uh, that they have people that call it media relations. They deal with the media firsthand as far as law enforcement. They try to establish good relationships so they can get the right information out. Doesn't always happen. Most of the time, it doesn't happen. You don't get complete truth. So sometimes the media, I mean, the public is getting information that is not entirely complete truth. And that's a that's a whole nother story in itself. I think that law, uh, the relationship between the public and law enforcement has to be established, not as the media is in between or someone to conduct that. I think it has to be done between personal law enforcement and the public. When I was on the road as a law enforcement officer, before I got got on the SWAT team, I made it my business to go talk to talk to the people in the stores and I established a relationship so they can truly see who I was as a law enforcement officer, as opposed to letting the media draw a picture of who I am. So they could see the humanity. Absolutely. Uh, and I think about this too, law enforcement, whether you're talking about, I mean, the uniform or the SWAT team, it's not a pretty business. It's not a business where you're going to always see something that's pretty. And, and I think as as a community or people, we have to understand that when you deal with ugly situations with people who are not that that bad element in society, it's not going to be a pretty thing because they're not going to comply most of the times. They're not going to to do what you ask them to do. And And when it does come to a forceful situation. Sometimes it's not pretty. And then you have the other equation where you have people who are not adapted or, or equipped to, are trained, I'm talking about law enforcement, trained to be able to deal with that bad element at that type of level when you're talking about physical force. So sometimes, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where you have to have an understanding that human nature, our human ability sometimes falls short. And sometimes we don't, we don't prepare ourselves. And I'm talking about from the public in law enforcement to be able to understand what we're witnessing and what we're dealing with. So when you have someone in the middle, like the media, drawing a picture, it's not always clear. So it keeps, it keeps the complete truth out of it. There's a lot of pieces to that that I would, would like to have go down further, but you hit on something that really is more in line with the nature of this podcast, which is about health, fitness, mindset, and to some degree, to a small extent, dealing with mental issues and whatnot. Right. You mentioned something that sounded in a listing of things that were hints of this horrifying thing and this horrifying thing. The idea of hunting cops as a hobby being on the rise. How much on the rise and what is the psychological impact of that? 
Okay, so from from what I can see, when I and I always have to when people ask me questions, they they fail to see that I've seen decades of change in law enforcement. I've been on the department for thirty six years, or I'll be re, I'll be retiring in two months. So there's always the transition or our progression, our evolution. And and most questions that you ask, I can ask, I can answer from back to thirty six years ago to what we're dealing with now. And I have to, I always try to go back so I can give you a clear progression of what what I see from my perspective as far as it goes with law enforcement. So when I first got on, there were always at some point in time, a law enforcement officer would be uh, slain in the line of duty. It was generally the same average amount for, for decades. I would say in the past seven to five years, it has gone to a level like I've never seen before, never would even imagine before. And like I said, a lot, a lot of that is stemming from it's, it's just not one thing. So when when people try to put it on one thing and the media try to put it on one thing, this officer is bad, this officer is bad, the officers are horrible. You have a small percentage where that is true. I won't I won't say it's not true because you just like in any any uh, profession, you have bad people in that profession. But a lot of it has to do with other different elements. Like, for example, some law enforcement aren't trained for that type of environment. They're not mentally or physically capable of handling a violent uh, situation because there's so much that goes on when you're dealing with a violent situation where someone has taken a life or about to take a life or they're going to take your life. And you are that one that stands in between that individual, that bad element and the person. There's so much that goes on. It's real. It's not something you see on TV. Your life is going to be taken. That other person's life is going to be taken. And if you're not trained up for that, and even if you're trained up for that, the actual event when that does happen is totally different if you're not, your mind is not set for that. So it's it's just one of those things where it's so much uh, involvement or so many elements involved in that. So you, to pinpoint why this is happening, how to fix it. you I think you have to look at it uh, in increments and deal with it on an incremental a level of increments. And then each one at a time, try to affect it and make it more effective. Uh, the training aspect. And I can tell you a lot of it, some people, they have an admiration, which I, I, I respect totally, become a law enforcement officer, but they really don't have the hard mindset to, to be able to deal with that and manage that. It takes special people to be able to do their job. And here's the, here's the imbalance. It seems to be more problems and more bad elements than out there than there are to get qualified people to become law enforcement. And I'm not saying that these law enforcement officers that are not capable are bad people. It's just that it's it's just not something everybody can do. So when you talk about from the beginning of has has it increased? Yes, it has. Uh, Law enforcement officers are being slain more than ever before because it's being fed uh, the perspective of people who are becoming vigilantes are are feeling that they think officers, all officers are out there to hunt them down and kill whether or not it's in it. Predominantly, it's, it's going with the black culture because the black culture feels that they're the ones that's being attacked or slain or, or, or whatever. So they're they're responding, the ones who are, I guess, are taking a vigilante perspective, responding on, you know what, we have to get justice. So we'll hunt down officers. And here's the thing. They, they don't have to know those officers. They just see a police officer and they, they, they slay them. So here's the ironic part about it. It's the very thing that they're accusing them of, of your stereotyping, just because I'm black, you're murdering us. So you can also look at it on this side, just because he's a police officer, you're murdering him. So uh, it just is such a bad results when people don't get the complete truth. And, and when you deal with something sensitive as, as law enforcement, because that's probably one of the most difficult professions there are. I mean, there, that, that there is, is to be a law enforcement officer because you have to be the judge, the juror, the medical uh, doctor. You have to be the psychologist. You have to be the, the comforter. You have to be all these things in a split second and maybe the executioner. And I tell you, that's a lot. That is an absolute lot. Not many people can do it. And uh, But you have people out there whose, whose admiration drive them to do it. And they're not capable. But I got to say this also. There are some officers out there that are capable of doing that. They're capable of handling it. They're capable of dealing with those, those hard situations. They're able to turn that switch on when they have to use a certain amount of force. And when they have to be kind to people and and not so forceful. It's not an easy thing to do because human nature has a tendency to categorize people all in one lump sum on both sides. If I said before, the black culture as opposed to the law enforcement culture, 
the same things happen on both sides. So, I mean, yes, there's, there is an increase on the hunting and slaying of law enforcement at a level like none before. And I believe what I just mentioned has a lot to do with that. That's the leading to this particular uh, new uprising of slaying law enforcement. Again, there's a part of me that wants to keep this focused onto the training and the psychological ramifications of having to deal with certain situations. But uh, God, I feel like I would be remiss to ask about the very fraught idea of how, and maybe I cannot claim to know how it evolved into the situation where they're almost framing. And I would like to think of it as a false equation. I hope it's a false equation of black lives matter versus blue lives matter. And the way those terms are used to effectively try to negate a conversation. Right. Uh, God. And, and of course, it's increasingly more fraught for me even to ask these questions because I'm sort of a not well-versed in either side of this topic, white guy with no law enforcement. Though I will admit I've had in my own experiences with racism, though not those experiences. Mm-hmm. But for you, who somebody who sits in the middle. How, how do we square that situation of a media that certainly seems to my eyes to like the conflict more than the information? So black lives matter, no blue lives matter, which again, that is conversation stopping language. The, the, the point is to not have a discussion about problems in society. The, the point of those terms is to shut down conversation. How do we square that circle? Well, see, I happen to be in a position where I'm, I'm, I'm both. I'm the black man and I'm the police officer. So the issue of Black Lives Matter, the issues of Blue Lives Matter are both on the equation of my world. And I'm in a position where I have to be honest. How you find the equation to this or the answer to this or understanding or balance, however you want to say it, is you just have to be honest. And, and what I mean by that is if there's a law enforcement officer and, and, and they're out there, like I said, they're not a whole lot. And, and this is where the gray area comes in with the media and the misinterpretation and not even understanding the law and the use of force of the law. All that's gray when you have an officer who who appears to have violated someone's rights. And I'm not saying if they did, they didn't. I'm just saying when it appears, there's not a clear uh, cut picture of if he did or if he didn't because of that gray area. And that's been uh, projected not just by the media, but by people's understanding and perspective. So as a black man, I see both sides. And my my way of dealing with it is just being honest. Did that person violate his right? But also being honest with proper education, proper knowledge of what the law is. What that officer did based on the law, was he justified in his action? Depending on, I mean, whether you like it or not, the law is there for a reason. And sometimes in these situations, what I've seen, that officer did everything according to the policy. Now, does that mean that officer is wrong? I don't think it does. It means that if it's if it's an unjust policy, the policy should, policy should be changed. Now, if there's a situation, like I said, being honest, if there's a situation where you can clearly show this officer was being a racist and acting out on racism, uh, it should be determined. It should be carried out with justice. And I can say this because I can tell you, I can, I know my past. I know my human history. I know my history with my uh, relatives. I know, uh, just to tell you, my, my grandfather on my mother's side, he was great, great grandfather. He was murdered by white people because he was very well educated. He had done a lot in society and they took him off one day and they murdered him and he never came back. So I can't say that, oh, I don't think racism exists. I do know it exists, but here's where we have to be honest. I know all Caucasian or anybody that's not race, I mean, not my race and color, are not racist. And that's what you have to understand. It's just like anything. Everybody doesn't act the same way and the same. You have to base, you have to measure people based on the individual. Yes. Not overall. You have to do that. And that's what I mean by being honest. When you lump everybody in that same sum and you're saying, well, these cops are murdering all of us because we're black. Look at these cops. They're right. You're doing the exact same thing that you're protesting against. You have to be honest. You have to check your heart and examine your heart because that's where it's at. My family is interracial. My mom was, uh, she's very, very light in color. She looks white, but she's a mixture of, of German. And um, that's what I'm talking about on my father's, my mother's side who was murdered. 
she's German and she's black and Indian, but she appears to be white. So when I was a kid, the black kids called me a, a zebra and they called my mom a hunky. These are black kids. Kids are lovely. Yes. I learned something at a young age that you cannot judge people by their color or, or, or even their profession. You have to judge people on an individual basis because I was mistreated by white people. I was mistreated by black people, but I was treated well by white people and I was treated well by black people. So you just have to be honest. If we can just be honest with ourselves, be honest about ourselves, be honest about our hearts, be honest about our surroundings, you have to check your hearts and make sure what you see that's bad doesn't affect the truth. So when you do that, you gauge things on an individual basis. This guy's black, but he's a good person. This guy's white, but he's a good person. This guy's a lawyer. And I tell you, I've had some bad counts with lawyers in my profession, to be honest with you. What a surprise. But he's a good person. So you have to do that. And that's not always to do because a lot of times when we're acting on this, we're emotionally driven. And when you have a person, that, a, person a family member that's been lost, and I have, my, my great-great-grandfather, uh, he was, like I said, what happened to him was unfortunate. It's hard to not have the gravity of the emotions of that kind of situation pull on you and, and affect your reactions in most situations, especially fraught situations. Yes, but in order to stop that growing hatred, you have to. You have to step back. You have to let the emotions run out, let it play, because you can't stop it. But then you, at some point in time, you have to step back and say, okay, who is this person I'm dealing with now? Don't look at him as white. Don't look at him as black. Don't look at him as anything. Look at him as, as a person first. And then based on that, you make a determination on who and what they are. If you look at him straight out of the block, oh, he's black or he's white, you're already going to cut him off. You're already going to assume he's a monster. You're already going to assume these things. And therefore, you're feeding that same hatred. It's going to lead to that hatred. I am telling you that the only way we can really resolve this matter is we have to look at people on an individual basis based on who and what they are there. You have, it takes time. A tree is known by the fruit it bears. It's going to show. That's how, you, that's how you manage and deal with that individual. Whether you're talking about uh, color, whether you're talking about profession, whether you're talking about anything, because you're going to negate good people and lump them in that whole sum because of a bad experience you had with someone based on that color, based on that profession. Because in every area, whether you're talking about color, race, profession, uh, religion, you have bad in there, you have good in there. You're going to cut everybody off because you have a bad bad uh, experience with that, that particular person by just lumping everybody in that category. On the one hand, the past several years have been very frightening about what's been going on with how people have been presenting themselves, how race is being presented. But there's also been a lot of good in progress that has shown where the fruit is going to blossom. Is that the right way of saying that? I just 100% agree with you. I have nothing more to add. I think the individual is the individual. Everyone should be judged by who they are as a person. My five seconds on the soapbox. Again, ostensibly, we're talking about fitness, wellness, <laughs> mindset or whatnot. I want to focus back around into working the SWAT has to be one of the most high pressured jobs you can have with situations that most people outside of a war zone never experience. And probably situations that some people in a war zone don't because of the manner that you're expected to handle them. Yes. I assume with no knowledge. And, and as you said, 35 years, which means the Dexter of today deals with situations vastly different than the Dexter whom just got done with his, I'm going to the bathroom buddy and had to go out on a call. Emotionally, how do you and your colleagues deal with it? How do you steal yourself to be in a situation that is so high pressure? Because as I said in the introduction to this, we throw around the phrase life or death as if it's an everyday occurrence, and it's not. And in a real life or death occurrence, that can leave emotional scars. How do you deal with it? And I know you mentioned that there's part of you that was built for this. There are people whom come in who have the psychological makeup to be able to do these kinds of things. But even then, I would believe that that doesn't get you all the way there. Absolutely not. It does not get you all the way there. I believe, and I, and I do understand, and I know uh, that life is like, it's, it's a growing process and it's a constant, a constant. As long as you're alive, there's going to be a, the opportunity to grow. And, and what I mean by that is, and, and my, and to answer to your question, what I mean by that is 
the experiences you have and the experiences you see, uh, good or bad, it's it's an opportunity for you to grow if you have some type of understanding. And in that understanding, you gain some form of balance. Now, in order to have that balance, there have to be some type of uh, belief in you. And I'm not going to preach about a belief or anything like that because mine is just my faith. And, and my martial arts background and my sports background that has given me a certain discipline and a certain thing to make me self-evaluate myself and examine myself to make sure I'm on point and make sure I'm fair, make sure I'm doing everything in my capacity to, to be who and what I'm supposed to be. If I'm in that capacity, as far as SWAT law enforcement, I have to make sure I'm capable first. So if I'm capable and I do everything in my power to make sure I'm capable of performing that task of duly, no matter what happens in the performance of my job, good or bad, uh, if there's a bad result or a good resort, I always have to look at myself. I look at myself and say, well, Dexter, uh, have you done everything in your power that you're capable of doing to be able to function and carry that job? Because if I can't, if I'm not, I'm not, I shouldn't be there. And it should be up to me to say, Dexter's time for leave. You cannot do this job. So that is a balance that you have to have. It's a balance of honesty and a balance of humidity. humidity. I mean, humility. Uh, so when you when you have that, that's just one step. A psychological buttress against the pressures and the horror. I've, I, I did everything I could to be ready for that moment. Yes, ex- exactly. And then here's the thing. You have to accept that. Because all the things I've seen, I don't see all of them all the time. But there are certain ones I just cannot unsee. Uh, when I get ready to go to sleep at night, I'm relaxing my mind. If I'm having a conversation with you and there's a, a moment that's set down, sometimes I'll see them. I'll see them playing and staying. When I'm talking about, I'm talking about the victims that I've seen that have been uh, uh, murdered in, in the worst, worst ways. I have, to, I, have to, I have to manage that because it doesn't go anywhere. And, and, and sometimes I'm just... You know, doing something, I'll see something uh, like a, a car going a certain way or a building, and it'll draw my memory back to something I've seen that's horrible. It, it, you have to be, have a mental balance. And how do I do that? I'll tell you how. I have a belief system in me that I have to ha- have understanding that I'm not uh, the savior. I'm not the one that can, I, I can't bring people back to life. I can't. I can't be at all places at one time. I can't do that. But what I can do is understand my job and more importantly, believe in what I do. And I do. I have 100% belief in what I do. And I'll tell you why. Because my experiences in the 36 years, not just in in the uh, SWAT capacity, but most of it is. I've seen the results of when me, and I'm going to go back to the SWAT team right now, when me and my team have effectively saved lives. And, 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 and I know for a fact that these people were praying. Whether they, well, I don't care what their faith was. They were praying for someone to come in that door, come to that structure, come on that field, come in that car, come in that building, and literally rescue them from, from death itself, that individual, whoever it is, that bad element, whether it's from mental disorder, whether it's from they're just a criminal-minded person, but they're about to effectively take a life and have effectively taken lives, and they're about to be the next victim, and we come through that door and we save them. That is that thing that I know why I believe in what I believe. That's that proof of that, because when you save a life, I'm telling you, there is no other greater feeling to save a life. And I, when you save a baby's life, and after you've seen babies lose their lives, that, that, that balances the losses that you've seen in the past. That one life you save balances that, that, that horror that you've seen. And what does it do? It gives you that purpose that I always talk about. You got to have purpose. You have to have a purpose greater than yourself. Because if you just have a purpose yourself, you're self-pleasing, self-satisfying. Once you're pleased, once you're satisfied, once you reach that, 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 that doorway, that threshold of certain fear and death is going to come, you're going to stop because I'm good. But when you have get to that threshold where you're about to break that threshold, you're going to die. If, if you're probably going to die, you'll stop. But when you have that, that, that greater purpose, that person you work, you're serving, you're going to go through that door. You're going to go through that door with, with intent of saving that life. Now, what does that do? When you have that in your mind, and your heart, and your spirit, when you train, you're going to train 
for that purpose. Meaning you're going to, when you're tired, you're going to push through it. When you, when you don't feel like doing something, you're going to get up and do it. We train with firearms and I know people don't like to talk about that stuff, but reality is reality. When you train for firearms and I have to train for my handgun, my rifle, there's three different rifles I have to use, uh, a sniper rifle, uh, assault rifle, uh, shotgun. And then and you have to train with all those weapons and be extremely proficient with them. Now, you're talking about the physical aspect. You got to be physically strong. You got to be able to run a certain distance, fight a certain fight to be able to get there and fight in the first place. So you got to be physically strong. You got to have endurance. You got to have all these things to get there and save that life. So everything you do is generated around your purpose. It gen- is generated around that certain service. And when you believe in that, you're going to do everything in your power to make sure you accomplish that. So all those things do give you balance, give you balance with all the bad things you're going to see, but you're going to see the good things too. Because if you work and train like you're supposed to, and you're around the right people who have a good system, and I'm talking about a SWAT team, Miami-Dade has had a history of incredible operators that have gone through mixed with military. We, we train with some of the top units in the world. I don't, I'll say their names. We train with Delta. We get exposed to Delta, Navy SEALs, Marine Recons, which is MARSOC. Uh, we, get, we train with all these uh, units and, 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 and we learn from them. We, we learn from our own experiences. And all these things lead to one thing, one moment. Are you going to effectively save that life? And when you do everything in your power, your capacity to be able to do that, when the bad things happen, they are, you're going to feel it. It's going to hurt. You're going to go to bed. Uh, you won't be able to go to bed. You're going to have to juggle and wrestle with that. And because I'm telling you, there's nothing worse than seeing a, a baby murdered. And if you do the type of work I do in Miami, like in Miami, it's, it's, it's some of the most horrible things you're going to witness and see. You're going to have to manage that. And like I said, the things I mentioned before, your, your, your purpose, great, you know, that thing that's greater than you and actually saving lives is sometimes it's going to help balance that. When you have that image come to your head, it keeps you from going to sleep. Do you then just simply take that energy and throw it into training? Uh, you, you, uh, which I'm trying to make sure I understand when I feel like, the, you know, the bad thing happens. You can't go like, even though you have this, what I call the psychological buttress, you have this philosophy, but you have to deal with it. It's not that okay, I understand what went on. I can pack it away in a neat little package. When it is happening, something went bad recently. You still have the memory in your mind. Is it something that you just kind of sit with in your head? Do you then like take the energy of that bad feeling and throw it into training, even though you have the philosophy and whatnot in the moment where it's 11 o'clock at night and you have this thing haunting you? What is your personal thing that you do with it in that moment? Okay, so you you said something that's very important, um, and I'll tell you tell you how I manage it. When when you're doing my work, it, it takes time. It takes time to be able to develop a system to be able to train, manage, and deal with so many uh, adversities and challenges uh, that you're going to see and you're going to experience. If, if you're in a, if you're in a city like ours, uh, Miami Dade, there are some there are some SWAT teams that don't see a third of what we see and deal with. Uh, so I'll tell you exactly how I do it. At nighttime, if, if it's my time to get sleep and rest, because you have to rest. If you don't get the proper amount of rest in this job, and sometimes you don't, uh, and it's sometimes you're chasing after that rest, you won't be able to function and do this job to the full capacity. So that's always one of the biggest challenges. So at that time, if I'm laying down to go to sleep, I have to. I have to find that time. And sometimes it takes hours. Sometimes it takes hours for me to relax and 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 get to a point where I can go to sleep. And I try not to take any, I don't self-medicate. And that's what happens to law enforcement. A lot of our, a lot of people who do the type of work, they start self-medicating. They drink, they do this, they take sleeping pills, whatever they take. But those things work in the negative in the long run. So I don't do any of those things. I, 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 it, like I say, it takes, sometimes it takes four hours for me to finally go to sleep. But when I do go to sleep, I sleep until the point that I have sufficient rest. And fortunately for me, I don't have to be to work unless they call me until later on that evening. So I have, I have to measure how I train and when I train based on how much sleep I got that night. Because sometimes I'll wake up at, I'll get my six hours or seven hours of sleep when I finally get it. I will wake up till later on and later on that afternoon, then I'll start my training. When I'm successful at getting my sleep early, 
I wake up early and get my training and go on from there. So that's how I do it then, there. I try not to come out of, when I'm trying to get my rest, I try to go, oh, you know what? I'm just going to go train and blah, 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 because that's not good. Mm. When you're tired, because your body's physically tired, your mind can't rest. So when your body's physically tired and you pile more training on it, it's not positive training, it's negative training. At that time, your goal is to get that rest. Rest is extremely important. The body refuses, the mind, it regroups, it refreshes itself, and your body heals because you're going to get some injuries, you're going to get tears. We, we have a lot of injuries in my unit. You're going to get them, we call them tattoos. So your body has to get that rest. It's important. At that time, the training portion isn't, it's not good. I, I've done it from time to time, but I don't do it often because I do understand how the body works, how the mind works, and be able to do this job. We have to train totally different than other people. We have elements of how people train, but because of, if you're in a, a busy unit like ours, uh, we, I tell you, our unit is so busy. You've got 40 men doing the job uh, that requires probably about a, 120 men. So you got 40 men carrying a load that most people couldn't even imagine to carry. So that rest is so important. And that's we're always chasing after the rest. And the fun, funny thing is, is when we see each other, we greet each other sometimes by, did you rest last night? Yeah, I got some rest because that's important. We understand that. So, but when I get that rest and it's time to train, I train with everything I have because I know my purpose. I know that it's coming. You're going to have that person praying for some guys like us and women like us to go through that door and save their lives, pull them out of the grips of death. And that's how I manage it. When it's time to rest, rest is rest. When it's time to train, train is train. You've just laid out how you both mentally deal with how you work the job, work the training, and work the rest, which is as important as any of the other pieces. But you also mentioned officers that their survival stratagem is not quite as healthy. They have to self-medicate or whatnot, which makes me wonder do you find that for some of your fellow officers, there's just like a break point, the wrong day happened and there's no coming back from that wrong day. And I mean that they just lose the ability to do it. Yes, for certain. Yeah. Unfortunately, that, that's a true statement and question you just presented. Yes, for certain. Now, there are a couple of officers that in my, my time in my service and they were good, good guys. And I won't say were because one, one didn't survive his self-medicating he progressively went, went bad. And, and I, I can remember this one, it's three, three or four of them, this one individual officer, he, his point, he was a call out we had. I won't even go into details with that because you can actually pinpoint who it is I'm talking to. No, we don't need the details. Right. So he, like we, we deal with some horrible stuff. And like I said, everybody's not geared for it and nobody, everybody doesn't know how to manage that, balance it. And he progressively, went down, 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 down until finally he couldn't function our unit anymore. So he had to leave and he continued to wrestle with that and doing the wrong thing, self-medicating and started doing odd things. Just, and finally he, he, he met his demise and, and, and that, uh, his, his self-treatment, it cost him not only his career, it cost him his life. Uh, and several others, uh, have been in, uh, see psychiatrists or whatever, and some of them have come out and some of them haven't. And it's just one of those things, yes, that happens to officers. And it's an unfortunate, at least in my unit, and it's it's a sad thing to see. And you try to contact, keep in contact with them. You try to talk to them and get them out of it. But sometimes when they go down that bad path, it's hard for them to come out. I would imagine it would be. For myself, not that I'm ready to wrap this up. I don't want to go into another direction, but I do want to say I could never do the job that you do. And I am thankful that there are people like you who can and thankful that there are people like you that will take that moment and take that risk. And I'll use this, the, the word selfless. I don't think it's quite right because I think it's not this sense of selflessness. That's almost implying like that. You're not weighing a cost to yourself. I think you I think you are making a very determined decision. And I think that's more than being selfless. So uh, again, thank you. Now to lighten the load a little bit, mm -hmm. just because we went, we went a little deep there. You are 
a trainer. And I know this firsthand. You taught me a little bit of fun, stabby, stabby. Here I am with my rubber knife. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm looking forward to the guy who's going to be my stabby, stabby buddy is like six foot 18. And you can use him as a sundial if you have him sitting outside just to tell the time. So um, I'm looking forward to that. That's so Tim. Like how much a part of um, who you are is being somebody who trains people. Now, I know that there are job obligations and, and, and that's probably made you very good about it. But but you are very good. I, I believe very much out of this love of martial arts, like at least a piece of your heart is definitely sensei, sifu, coach, <laughs> trainer. I think that's a piece of you. You're exceptionally great at that. Right. And I have to, I have to give the all due respect to to my instructors. And I have to give them credit for it because I've been blessed to have some of the best instructors in the world. Uh, Mick Gould, uh, he's uh, ex-SAS. He was actual personal protector of uh, the Queen, Queen of England. And he's, he, is one, he is my instructor, one of my instructors, the last instructor I've had. He was, he's Michael Mann's top advisor. He did the movie. He, it changed the action in the movies, it changed how they do actions and methods and how they do action. It changed that he's done collab, he's done a lot of things. But more importantly, he's a real operator. He's been in real combative situations. So all my instructors have been like that. Herbie Thompson, Nisi Gosri, Karate and Jiu-Jitsu. Mick Gould is Naigo Sudo, Jiu-Jitsu and Combative Arts. I've studied under, uh, I studied Kundo, which is Korean uh, Kendo. Aki Jiu-Jitsu, Shidon Katori by Navy SEALs, uh, Sensei Rebo. So all these guys have military experience and not just military experience. They've been involved in combat. And I've always had the love of martial arts. I love all martial arts. I study Muay Thai. Uh, I love BJJ, although my background originated in Japanese jiu-jitsu. I love Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I love all those things. So uh, I do have a love for martial arts. And I'm a a fifth don, uh, a godon, not Nisi, uh, Nagasudo Jiu-Jitsu in Combat of Arts. And Nisi Gojuru Karate and Jiu-Jitsu. I'm a third don, which is black belt, black belts and those things. So, I mean, it's not that I went for the belt. It's just that I, uh, uh, I just love martial arts, even since I was a kid. And I think that's one of my greatest, not just my balances, it's, it's one of my greatest outlets. And it just gives me this freedom to, to be able to create that art, do the science. And more importantly, when I can help teach other people I'm not just teaching them to do martial arts. I'm teaching them to be to to have a empowerment of themselves and a freedom of themselves to be able to overcome. If they can overcome certain things or the challenges, because some of the things I teach is is very difficult. But my goal is not necessarily to teach them how to fight, but teaching them a heart and a mind sense of being able to overcome, overcome any challenges, whatever the challenges are, because that's ex- exactly what I do. And the previous things we talk, talked about, the dark side, we talked about the dark side of the job that I do. The way I've overcome them has been able to learn that fine system of being overcome myself. I can overcome those things because the challenges ultimately lie in yourself. So I do love teaching other people uh, martial arts. Like I said, the martial arts is important, but more importantly, it's the person that I'm teaching. I want to get them to see that. Brother, sister, you can do anything. You just have to be able to know the right methods and keep pushing through it. Keep pushing through the right techniques. And you're going to see something come alive in you that you didn't even know was there. So, yes, that's what I do. I love the martial arts. I love being a teacher. Even when I'm teaching uh, my the guys in the unit. In fact, I trained everybody in the unit right now that's there. I've trained every single one of those guys. I had my hand in teaching them and training them in uh, some of the firearms and tactics, the repelling, the DT, because Doing martial arts in our system, uh, I mean, in uh, my unit, is totally different. Once you put that vest on, once you have a have a rifle in your hand, you have 40, 50 pounds of gear on, and you have to fight. So, I mean, that's a challenge, but I love doing it. I love teaching these new guys that come in in the unit. I love teaching civilians like you uh, because not only it helps you, it helps me. It helps me to see because I'm telling you, like I said, when you save a life or you help a life, I'm not. I guess the bottom line to me is serving. I love serving. I love seeing the results of my service because when I see other people doing good, it makes me feel good. So martial arts have a lot to do with that. I have to say the most interesting thing that came out of our session, well, the boxing was a lot of fun and really, really intense. And I loved that. And all the knife positioning was great. The hardest thing 
the most intense thing for me was this. And I don't think you're going to be surprised. It was, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to instruct you. And you're going to work through it, but you're going to listen. I was getting better with it, but I was never good at it. Trying to divorce what I was doing from my ability to listen and process was the hardest and the worst part of it. When I say worst part, I also mean the most important best part. That's just my vernacular. I don't mean like, God, it was the worst. I could never do this. I know what you mean. That was the point, not the frustration of, you know, it's supposed to be blade hand, not hand blade. I screwed that one up. Okay. But I was the recognizing that while trying to remember the moves, but more importantly, while listening to you keep myself on track with what you were saying. And I also complimented you before on your use of the mitts. So we're doing the boxing mitts and your ability to recognize my energy and ride my energy and push me just a little bit in each direction that you wanted me to go to just keep me not only just keep me going, but here we're intensifying here. We're going to slow down here. You're going to breathe here. We're going to get simple. Now you're going to chase me halfway around the ring as fast as humanly possible, despite the fact you have no legs. It it was really good. It was really good. And because of that, what I want to hear out of you now, I should probably phrase that better to you, but what I want to throw at you now is share your storied, learned wisdom with somebody who's having a little bit difficulty getting off the couch. Like we're, we're taking the pressure level down really low here for you from your normal circumstances. Somebody who's kind of more like what I would perceive my listener to be somebody who might have let their fitness slip a little bit. When they look at somebody like you, whom clearly you're so experienced, so physically apt, and they look at you like, oh my God, I, there's just no way. What would be your advice? To, how, how would you get them started? Well, I, first I have to tell you a story. So in my, my unit, I mean, some people look at me and say, oh man, you're always in great shape. You're always this, you're always that. And I'm going down to the person who just can't seem to feel like, man, I can never do it. I, I just, and sometimes it's just self-defeat right off the get-go. And I'll tell you, I, I'm very familiar with that because I, I've had almost every injury known to mankind in my job because if you look at my hand, I got a piece of finger missing. I got shoulders been torn in three places. I have a metal hip. I've had broken this, broken that. And each time those things happen, I, I, I was at my lowest, not just physically, but mentally. And every single time I overcame it. Every single time I had to build myself back up from when I messed my hand up, I didn't have the grip of a a baby had a strong grip to me. And plus, I almost lost his finger. I was told, well, your career is over. I've been told that so many times. So I was at my lowest. And and, and it starts here. There's this this, this saying that goes, as a man thinks, so is he. You have to start thinking in a certain direction. It's up to you. It has to be a decision made here first. And every time I went through that, I made a decision. I had to see myself where I wanted to be. Then I had to think myself getting there. And then I had to get up and just do anything, movement. You just got to do some type of movement in that direction. You'll find out it's it's in our nature to be and overcome and to become better and better and better. Because I'll pose this, this to you. No one has ever taught a baby how to walk. No one. You, you can assist them. No one said to a, a child or a baby, Okay, you know, it's time for you to get up and walk. That baby instinctively gets up and then starts holding onto tables and start trying to walk. That's in us. That's in our DNA. That's in our makeup. That's who we are, man. We are conquerors. Every human that's in this world is a conqueror. Because when you think about it, when you got here, you fought and went against a thousand other little things swimming around that stream to, to fertilize that egg. Millions. Millions. You, you are naturally a winner. You just have to wake that up. And when you have those challenges, which I've had, because each time it took, it's it one, most of my injuries take, well, my worst injuries took seven months to build myself. That's almost a whole year of not being able to do what I know I'm capable of doing, I have done before. And most people will quit and they say, you know, that's it, my career is over. Not me, my mind. And, and, and that same thing that drove us to get to that, that egg and fertilize it, that's in you. You just have to open that up. And it starts with here, think. You have to think and see yourself doing it. And then after that, it's just moving that direction. And you're going to see that, man, you know what? 
I kind of look forward to this. And you're going to see improvement. And that improvement, it, it gives you that, that push to say, you know, I like this. But then it's going to be phases. You're going to say, you know, I don't feel like getting up and doing that. I don't feel like doing this. I don't feel like doing that. And that comes to that thing. You got to have a purpose greater than yourself. So your purpose should be, you know, I want to live a good and better and more quality life. That's your purpose. And when you start focusing on thing, that, that has to be the fuel that drives you. And then community is extremely important. You need to be around the right people who do those sorts of things. And they're going to push you and talk to you. And just by you visually seeing it, you're going to want to do it. Where we train, Bruce, being around the type of people, being around the type of element, being around the people that like to move and try to do it's going to push you. You're going to actually migrate to having, being around your environment, you become your environment. You just got to put yourself in an environment of people who, who do the kind of things you're trying to do. That's important. They do say that you are the sum of the five people you're around the most. That's true. The, the people you're around and the environment you're around totally affect who you are. Yes. So I, I say, first, you got to get your mindset right. You got to have a vision of who and what you want. Well, how do I get a mindset? Start looking at magazines, start looking at TV, look at, get on YouTube, look at people who went from one, one point to the other. Look at them, watch them, mimic them. And you have to get up and start moving. Then put yourself in that environment. Find a good system that's, that's good for you, tell it for you. Well, how do I know the system's telling for you? Trial and error. This didn't work, I didn't like that. And then you'll find something like, like I use the knife sometimes to train people. I use the mitts to train people because I'm trying to find that, that language that they love, that they appreciate and understand. And they start loving that challenge. And they say, man, I love the progress. And soon later, you forget about the energy uh, or the energy it takes to do it. It'll remind you because you're going to get tired. But you have the right person that pushing you, the right community pushing you. You're just going to get better. You have to continue to stay around that environment, continue to put that positive stuff in your mind. And when people start saying, oh, you, you can't do this. You can't do that. You got to put an X on them and don't be around them. Put yourself around the good people and you will see improvement. As a man thinks, so is he. And you, you, you're going to be, you're going to absorb your, your community, who you're around. All those things are elements to get you where you want to be. Awesome. And I think that is a great note to close that out on. So Dexter, where can people find you when they're not finding you here? Yes. Uh, it, I'm, at, I'm on my IG page, uh, Nagasudo USA. Uh, I talk to a lot of people there and I enjoy talking to people there. So if you look me up on Instagram, Nagasudo USA, don't put, well, I don't know if you can find it on a Dexter, but Nagasudo USA. Uh, Nagasudo happens to be the, t- the system that I teach. So that's where you can find me. And as for me, I'm the fittest fat kid you know, and you're finding me right here, right now. What a surprise. But if you're social media oriented, you can find me on TikTok on Instagram, on Twitter, on my own Facebook page, and that's at Fittest Fat Kid. If you've got a question, concern, if you want to share your story with me, you can do that. And you can find me at hi there at fittestfatkid.com. If you like this podcast, and if, or if you're watching it on YouTube, subscribe, leave a like, leave a comment. I like to interact. But no matter who you are, no matter where you are, hold yourself accountable but do it with kindness and understanding. And I'll talk to you next week.